coming up on Tech Nation, how to change anyone's mind. Really? Wharton Marketing Professor Jonah Berger takes us through the science and the scenarios. He's here today with The Catalyst, how to change anyone's mind. Then on Biotech Nation, it seems like all we're doing lately is avoiding viruses. But what if we can get viruses to work for us? That's the idea from Aspa Therapeutics. They're working on using viruses to deliver essential treatment for the rare genetic condition of Canavan's disease. If an engineered virus works here, where else might it work? All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with Matt Ridley, who had just published The Rational Optimist, How Prosperity Evolves. I started out by asking him to read a passage from it. As I write this, it is nine o'clock in the morning, In the two hours since I got out of bed, I have showered in water heated by North Sea gas, shaved using an American razor running on electricity made from British coal, eaten a slice of bread made from French wheat spread with New Zealand butter and Spanish marmalade, then brewed a cup of tea using leaves grown in Sri Lanka, dressed myself in clothes of Indian cotton and Australian wool with shoes of Chinese leather and Malaysian rubber, and read a newspaper made from Finnish wood pulp and Chinese ink. I'm now sitting at a desk, typing on a Thai plastic plastic keyboard, which perhaps began life in an Arab oil well, in order to move electrons through a Korean silicon chip and some wires of Chilean copper to display text on a computer designed and manufactured by an American firm. I have consumed goods and services from dozens of countries already this morning. Actually, I'm guessing at the nationalities of some of these items because it's almost impossible to define some of them as coming from any country. So diverse are their sources." Now, one might think we're talking about globalization, but in a whole manner of speaking, we're really talking about the division of labor. That's right. Um, Exchange and specialization, I think. The habit we got into 100,000 years ago is the secret of human uh, prosperity and progress, because it's this this habit of working for each other. We're all working for each other. Um, We're we're consuming tiny fractions of each other's uh, work. And and in exchange, we're supplying our own specialized thing. We get more and more specialized in the work we produce and more and more diversified in the stuff we consume. I love the example that you use when you compare the Hanyun stone axe of 500,000 years ago with the wireless mouse, both technologies made for and by the human hand. That's right. They're very similar. They're exactly the same size. I have this 500,000-year-old hand axe on, on my desk, and I just noticed one day it's exactly the same size and shape as the computer mouse Keep I Keep it use away from day. the grandchildren. Just trust <laughs> me. It's going to get chucked in the lake. Well, yeah, and I sometimes think that if I click with it, something will happen. But of course it doesn't. But the beauty of them is the difference, because the weird thing about the mouse is that it was made for me by someone else, whereas the hand axe was made by somebody for himself. And it wasn't just made by one other person. It was made by thousands, perhaps even millions of people when you think about it. All the people who had to drill the oil well to make the plastic and so on. And yet nobody, not one of them, knew how to make a computer mouse. 
Literally, nobody in the world knows how to make a computer mouse. The knowledge is, is, is dispersed in society. It's not held in any one brain. Because, you know, the man who runs the computer mouse company doesn't know how to drill an oil well, and so on. And I think that is what we've created in human society, which is collective intelligence. It, it transcends the human brain. It doesn't matter how clever we are. What we have to do is communicate in order to set up this network of, of, of brains. It's only really possible to have a new thought because of the, because of the other thoughts that, that you've already got from other people. Uh, and actually, if you look at you know, great ideas like you know, natural selection or the invisible hand of Adam Smith, both of which I write about in the book, there are lots of predecessors. There are people who are getting halfway there or three-quarters of the way there, and, and Smith or Darwin, they're combining what, what these guys said and putting them together. So I do believe that even... At the intellectual level, creativity is a form of recombination. So it's um, insight in recombining. Yes. I mean, clearly, the, you know, there are new things under the sun. I'm not suggesting that, that there's no new things. But, but we, we underestimate the extent to which creativity actually comes from rearranging the atoms, the electrons, and indeed the abstract parts of the world uh, into new combinations. And that's sort of where most innovation happens, I think. I've been speaking with Matt Ridley about his 2010 book, The Rational Optimist. Now, 10 years later, he's a new book coming out early this summer. It's called How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, you might remember Wharton marketing professor Jonah Berger from his earlier books, Contagious, An Invisible Influence. He's here today with The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. Then on Biotech Nation, I speak with Dr. Eric David, the CEO of Aspa Therapeutics. They're working on an approach to treating Canavan disease, a rare genetic disease which affects one in every 6,000 births. And Aspa is looking to deliver the missing genetic instructions using a virus. And now, Jonah Berger. Well, Jonah, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thanks so much for having me. And congratulations on the new baby. Had any sleep lately? I've <laughs> <laughs> gotten a, a little bit here and there, yes, a little bit along the way. Yeah, and so sometimes it'll be because the baby's crying, but as decades go by, it just keeps you up thinking about them. <laughs> <laughs> you hear the phantom babies. The phantom babies are worse than the real ones. Than the real ones, than the real ones. Well, now we have, I'm going to start with the subtitle to your book, How to Change People's Minds. I was just wondering if you sent a copy to everybody in the, Democratic Party and the Republican Party. 
You know, it's a funny question. I, in fact, reached out to many people. I didn't reach out to the candidates themselves. I reached out to their communication directors through various social media channels. Didn't hear a lot back, but I, I certainly reached out and tried to spread the word. That's the way it goes sometimes. <laughs> but you let's... know, you, you can't choose who picks you. Sometimes I, somebody reaches out to me and I say, you know, I wish it was a different candidate who reached out or a different party, but you can't choose who reaches out to you. Yeah, you're there for everybody, right? Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. Now, one of the statements in the book that I thought was really important is people think that when changing minds, someone has to lose. Yeah. I think we have this notion when we try to change minds, we very much focus on ourselves and the change we want to see, right? So if I'm a salesperson, I think, oh, I'll, I'll change someone's mind and they'll buy my product. And I feel like if they don't, I lose. Uh, and if they do, I win. But it, it's not so uh, zero sum as we might think. There's an old uh, adage in, in negotiations that talks about, uh, you know, two people negotiating over an orange. And uh, they say, oh, you know, we both want this orange. How are we going to split it? And so they end up splitting it in, in half. Uh, but they actually should think about it a little differently because one person wanted to eat the orange uh, and another person needed the orange rind to, to bake a cake uh, and both would have been happier uh, had they looked at it uh, a different way. And so you know, the most interesting thing for me about doing research for this book was the way we think about change, right? We always think about pushing. We always think about adding more pressure, more reasons, more information, more facts, more figures. Even when I try to change people's minds, I think about, you know, what's that one argument or that line of reasoning? If I just make this, they'll end up coming around we think a lot less about a slightly different approach, which is why hasn't that person changed already? What are the barriers or the roadblocks, the obstacles that are preventing them from changing? Uh, and how can we mitigate them? I think a really good analogy to me is, is almost like a, a car. So imagine you're parked on a hill. You're trying to get your car to start. So you get in the seat, you put your seatbelt on, you stick your key uh, in the ignition. Uh, often when we turn that key and we push our foot on the gas, if the car doesn't go, we think we just need more gas. If that person doesn't change, if we just add more reasons, more information, more facts, more figures, they'll come around. Uh, but sometimes we don't need more gas. We just need to depress the parking brake. And so that's really what the catalyst is, is all about. It's all about, well, what are those often hidden parking brakes, those obstacles that we don't see? And how by mitigating or minimizing them can we make change more likely? So you're really looking to release the parking brake. Oh, certainly, right? First, we have to identify it. And I think that, to me, was, was one of the most interesting things about writing this book. We think a lot about the change we want to see. We think a lot less about the barriers or the obstacles that might be in the way of the person who we're trying to change, whether that person is a spouse, whether that person is a boss, whether that person is a customer, whether that person is an entire organization or a country. We think a lot about what we want them to do. We think a lot less about, well, what are those roadblocks in their own life? And once we understand those roadblocks, we can actually actually make change a lot easier. Well, the name of the book is The Catalyst. It's not how to change people's minds or anyone's mind. And catalyst is a term used in a number of fields, but it means something very specific in science. Is it compatible with our term in science or not? So we, when, as, as lay people, when we try to use the word catalyst, we use a very general meaning. We say a, a catalyst is a change agent. You know, this person was the catalyst or the sort of ingredient or the change agent that led something to, to happen, the sort of the rock that tipped the scales to make it go in a particular direction. But when you look to chemistry, a catalyst actually has a very precise meaning. And it's a very interesting uh, meaning. So anyone who has any background in chemistry remembers their high school chemistry class. You probably remember that change in chemistry is, is really 
really, really hard. It takes a long time. Uh, it takes, uh, you know, hundreds, if not thousands or millions of years for uh, carbon to turn into diamonds or, you know, plant matter to turn into oil. Uh, and so chemists often use a special set of substances to make uh, change happen faster and easier. Change in chemistry requires temperature or pressure. So if you think about a popcorn kernel, for example, imagine you're not going to microwave popcorn. You've just got a kernel on your counter in front of you. Well, it's not just going to pop, right? You got to do something to make it pop. You have to stick it in a pot with a lot of temperature, a lot of pressure, and eventually that temperature or pressure makes change happen. If you add energy, enough energy, uh, change happens. But there are a special set of substances that chemists often use to make change happen faster uh, and easier. These substances clean the grime on your contact lenses, and they clean uh, the exhaust uh, in your car engines. Uh, they do everything from make yogurt happen to uh, turn petroleum into bike helmets. But what's most interesting about these substances uh, is how they make change happen. They don't add more temperature or they don't add more pressure. They don't increase the amount of energy. They actually lower the amount of energy required. And you might say, well, how is that possible? Uh, well, what they do is they create an alternate path for a reaction to occur. Uh, and these substances are called catalysts and they've won dozens of Nobel prizes, uh, but they're equally important in the social world. Again, not adding temperature, not adding pressure, not adding more fuel to that fire, more regions, more pushing people. But think about, okay, well, what are those barriers and how can we mitigate them? How can we make the same change happen with less energy, not more, by understanding why change happens in the first place? You talk about hostage negotiators, and it's very impressive. I mean, they don't just say, I'm looking at you, and now you'll walk out and release your hostages, and your hands will be up, and everything will be fine. Crisis negotiation I guess it started with the 1972 Munich Olympics. Take us back there and, and tell us what's happened since that time. Sure. So crisis negotiation used to be very much like a traditional uh, negotiation that we might think of. It was zero sum. It was, you know, come out with your hands up. It was release the hostages or else. Uh, it was very much sort of traditional bargaining, uh, threatening punishment, sort of making demands uh, and assuming that would work. Uh, after the Munich disaster, both negotiators uh, as well as crisis uh, folks more generally realized, look, there's got to be a different way. And so what they started doing is thinking more about psychology. Uh, understanding the behavioral science behind how change works and starting to apply that behavioral science in these very high-stakes situations. Uh, and novice negotiators obviously want to do what most of us want to do. They want to jump straight to influence. They want to jump right away to what they're hoping to achieve. You know, they say, hey, you know, you do this or else. Um, you know, if you don't do X, Y, Z, uh, it's not what you want is not going to happen. Uh, but a lot of negotiators I talked to pointed out, you know, that really doesn't work because it's not in the frame of mind of the person you're trying to change, right? You come in there, there's a bank robber holed up in the bank. They've got hostages. You say, come out with your hands up. That's the last thing they, they want to do. And so what you have to do really is you have to start not with what you want to achieve, but you have to start with them. Start by understanding, well, why is that uh, bank robber there in the first place? Why is that person taking hostages? Why are they demanding money? What is it they're hoping to achieve? Now, you can't let them get off scot-free. You can't let them do whatever they want. But by understanding them in the first place, by starting with them, you're much more likely to get to an outcome that you want as well as one that they'll they'll tolerate. Uh, one great negotiator I talked to, you know, said, I always start with, hey, you know, my name is Greg. Are you okay? 
And what he does is not make demands. He starts by forming a relationship with that person. He starts by building a bridge, creating some trust and creating some understanding, trying to begin to understand, well, why is that person there? Asking questions, not making demands. Are you okay? What do you need? Starting to understand that person and and their needs and start to basically become their friend. He told me this amazing story, and and it's a situation that none of us would ever want to be in. But it's a situation where he was interacting with a guy who wanted to commit suicide. And so it was a guy, he had lost his job, he had an insurance policy, uh, and he thought the only way he could provide for his family was by killing himself. He no longer had money through his job. He wanted to provide for his family. Look, the only way I'm going to provide for my family is is by killing himself. And so he's holed up threatening to to kill himself. And so the negotiator comes on the scene. He starts by saying, hey, are you okay? What do you need? And he starts having a conversation, not jumping to the outcome of that conversation, which is, hey, you know, if you kill yourself, by the way, the the insurance policy is not going to play out, right? That's what most of us would want to do. We'd say, look, this isn't going to work for you. Let me just explain it to you and, and you'll come around. Not really, right? Because if that person's highly emotional, they're probably going to do something really bad, right? And so we can't just jump to the conclusion. We have to start with understanding. And we started having a conversation. Oh, well, well, why do you want, why do you want to kill yourself? And the guy said, oh, I need the insurance money. I lost my job. I need to provide for my family. Oh, it sounds like you care a lot about your family. Tell me a little bit more about them. Well, I have two sons. Okay, that's great. You know, I have sons also. What about your sons? What are their names? What are they like? And he starts having a real conversation just like any two people might have. He learns the guy cares a lot about his sons. He takes them fishing. He wants to grow up to be young men. Uh, he wants to, to treat them, learn them how to treat women. He wants them to be good members of society. And, you know, he has this conversation. And, and towards the end, he goes around and he says, okay, it sounds like you care a lot about your sons. And that's where he's going to move to what he wants the outcome to be, right? And the guy says, yeah, I care a lot about my sons. And the negotiator goes, well, if you kill yourself, your sons are going to lose the best friend they've ever had. And notice what he did right there. And I get, I get chills even now, uh, even, even saying what he, what he did. But what he really cleverly did is he used what that person wanted and helped guide the journey to help that person realize that the best way to get what they wanted was to do what he wanted to do in the first place. He didn't tell him, hey, don't commit suicide. You're not going to get the money. He said, what is that thing you actually want? Let me show you how the best way to get there is actually doing what I wanted you to do in the first place. Didn't take two minutes. Didn't take 30 seconds. Wasn't the easy easiest thing ever, but as a powerful technique, I think all of us can use, right? Hopefully, God, hopefully none of us will ever be in this situation of trying to uh, convince someone not to commit suicide. But by understanding how that works, by starting with understanding, by starting with the person who we're trying to convince, we can be much more effective in, in getting them to come around. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Wharton Marketing Professor Jonah Berger. You may remember him from his earlier books, Contagious and Invisible Influence. He's here today with The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. These were examples of talking to one person. Sometimes it's one person or it's an organization like where you work or it's your parents uh, or it's the school or it's the neighborhood association or it's the entire federal government. Do the rules change depending on who you're speaking with? You know, I think where we have to start is by finding those barriers, finding those roadblocks or obstacles. Um, as I talk about in the book, there, there are five key ones that come up uh, again and again. There's reactance, uh, endowment, 
distance, uncertainty, uh, and corroborating evidence. And you, you put those five together and they spell uh, an acronym. They, they make the word reduce, uh, which is exactly what good catalysts do. They don't push harder. Uh, they reduce or they remove barriers. Uh, and not all five of those barriers are important all of the time. Uh, some of them are more important in an organizational context. Some of them are more important when you're trying to change a customer's mind. Um, some of them may be more useful for individuals or groups. But I think what I found most surprising is that approach, looking for barriers, is just quite different than most of us are, are already doing. You know, I, I did a study uh, at the Wharton School where I asked hundreds of executives from a range of different companies and organizations, you know, what is something that you want to change? And they wrote that down. Uh, and then how do you usually think about trying to change that or what have you tried already? Uh, and over 98% of the time, people come up with some version of pushing. We're just not used to thinking about those barriers. And so I think in the first place is identifying those barriers, whether it's a one person or an organization, and then once we figured out the barriers, then we need to think about how to, how to mitigate them. And, and that's really what the book is all about, right? Identifying these key barriers and providing some at least preliminary strategies, regardless of what type of situation you're in, that you can use to, to mitigate or, or loosen some of these obstacles. So many people today are out on things like eBay or any kind of auction site or a site of special interest where someone's selling something and somebody else is trying to find it or is trying to buy it. You say sellers value things more than buyers and why you need to have the upside be 2.6 times larger than the downside to get people to take action. Yeah. So we, all of us, uh, tend to be attached to things we're doing uh, already. And uh, a good way to think about that is, is you know, imagine I, I offered you a mug. So I imagine I said, hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm going to give you uh, this Wharton coffee mug. It's nice and white. Uh, it's got a Wharton logo on the side. Uh, and I was willing to give it to you. Okay. So I gave you this coffee mug and I asked you how much you'd be willing to pay for, uh, or willing to sell that coffee mug for. If you had to sell that mug to someone else, how much you'd be willing to sell it for? And I asked a separate group of people, hey, uh, imagine you didn't have this mug yet, how much you'd be willing to buy it for? We might expect that those two amounts would be the same. After all, that coffee mug is the same, whether you already own it or whether you don't. Uh, a house is the same, whether it's yours or whether it's not. It's still the same house. It has the same uh, bricks. It has the same roof, all those different things. But it turns out we value things sometimes two times as much uh, if we have them than if we don't. Uh, that coffee mug, for example, if you're buying it, you might be willing to pay 2 or $3. If you're selling it, you probably want 6 or even $7. Uh, the longer you've lived in a home, uh, even outside of its actual price on the market, the the higher you value it above uh, market price. This is called the endowment effect. The things we already have, the things we already own, the things we already use, the things we already know, we tend to be attached to them. And it becomes really hard to imagine giving them up, uh, even if something better uh, comes along. Uh, and part of the reason why uh, is a broader phenomenon called loss aversion. Uh, and some of your listeners are probably familiar with this idea already. Uh, but imagine I took a coin and I said, hey, I'm going to flip a coin. Uh, heads, you win $100. Tails, you lose $100. Would you take that bet? Now, most of your listeners would probably say, no, I, I wouldn't take that bet. Uh, you know, I, I do an expected value calculation if I'm an economist. I say, okay, 50% chance heads of, of winning $100, 50% chance of uh, tails losing $100. 
the expected value of that bet is zero. I shouldn't take the bet. It's, it's not really worth it. Uh, so let me sweeten the pot uh, a little bit. I say, hey, I'll, I'll flip that coin. Heads, you win $110. Uh, tails, you lose $100. There, the expected value is positive. I won't make you guys break out your calculators, but uh, you can see that the, the winning is, is higher than the losing. So most people should take that bet. But most of you listening probably would say, well, no, I wouldn't be willing to lose $100 to get a chance to win $110. The upside's just not uh, good enough. It's not big enough to overcome that that downside. And that's the idea of loss aversion. The downsides are often weighed more heavily uh, than, than the upsides. The losses uh, loom larger than the gains loom positive. Uh, and so think about something like getting a new phone, for example. Uh, sure, the new phone has a better battery life. It has more memory. It has a better camera. But it also has a different footprint. Uh, you need to fork over a few hundred dollars to buy it. Uh, you may need to learn a new system or a new software uh, to use it. You have to port all your pictures over. All of that requires time and effort, and all of that is a downside. And all of that cost, when we focus on change, we often focus on the upside, the good things. We often pay a little less attention to the downside. And it turns out that upside has to be at least two times as good to get us to overcome those those downsides. So if we're at work, say, and one group wants to do one thing and your group wants to do the other, if they're of equal value, the other group isn't going to move. No, it's like it's equal value. But if you can increase your value, the value of what you're doing, the perceived value up from the other group, then you got a chance to change. Certainly. I mean, I mean, one thing I talk about in the book is the status quo often seems costless. So, so imagine we're at the office. We're already using a certain program. We're engaging in a certain initiative. We're doing things a certain way. That might be the status quo. Uh, and you want to do something differently. You want to start a new initiative. You want to use a new service. Uh, you want to think about a, a different approach. Uh, that new thing's got to be better. And people think, look, let's just stick with the old one. It's safer. It's easier. We know how it works. Yes, it's got some downsides, but we know what those downsides are. We should stick with it. And so one thing I talk a lot about in the book is it seems like the status quo is costless, but it often isn't. And so one question is, how can we highlight uh, the costs uh, of inaction? Um, there's a great study, one of my favorite studies from the, in, from the book, uh, looks at uh, injuries. And they compare minor and major injuries. So imagine you, you sprain your finger, you sprain your ankle versus, you know, you break your finger, you break your ankle, a more major injury. Which do you think would cause you more pain, uh, a more minor injury or a more major one? And, and most people say, well, of, of course, the major one, right? I mean, you, you break your finger, you break your ankle, you, you, you know, really hurt your knee. That's a big major injury. Of course, that'll be more impactful than the minor one. But it actually turns out that the minor injuries cause you more pain because for those major injuries, we get them fixed. If we break our finger, we go to the doctor, we go to the hospital, we get it set, we get a cast on our ankle, we go through rehab, we do all the work to get it to be fixed. But if it's a minor injury, we never get it fixed. It's below that threshold. And so because we never get it fixed, it ends up causing us more pain. And that's the same thing as we go back to that idea of the office. That old project, that old initiative, that old way of doing things is probably below that threshold to get changed. So we need to make people realize, hey, over time, those little losses add up to actually a, a big one. It's actually not safe to stick with the status quo. I, I tell a story in the book of a cousin of mine well, actually, every time he wrote an email, he'd write out at the end, regards Charles. Uh, so, you know, he'd write the email and then rather than, you know, automating that little signature part at the bottom, he'd write out the word regards, comma, Charles. Uh, and I said, hey, 
that takes you a lot of time. You know, why don't you just use an automatic signature? I said, well, it doesn't take me much time, right? It only takes me one or two seconds every time I do it. You know, it's going to take me a long time to learn how to do auto signature. I haven't done it yet. It's going to take me a while. I'll just stick with the old way of doing it. That cost was below the threshold, right? It was like that minor injury. Sure, his finger might hurt a little bit, but it's not big enough to go to the doctor. Sure, the old way of doing things isn't perfect, but it's not bad enough to go get it fixed. And so what we have to do is we have to make people realize, wait, that status quo isn't costless. It's big enough to get it fixed. In the case of my cousin, for example, I said, well, how many emails do you send out every day? He said, oh, I don't know, maybe a hundred. And I said, okay, well then how many emails do you send out every month? And he said, okay, did the math. And I said, well, how many seconds for each of those emails does it take you to write that email signature? And he did the math and then he opened up his computer and typed into Google, you know, how to automate your email signature. Because what he realized is yes, it's only one or two seconds each time, but add that seconds up over many emails, over many weeks and months, and suddenly now just it's not a little uh, you know sprained finger, it's a big injury. We've got to get it fixed. And same thing for that problem at the office. Show people while what they're doing might not be that much worse than what you're suggesting, add it up over time, those losses, those little downsides actually make something big enough that's worth getting fixed. You've been listening to Wharton Marketing Professor Jonah Berger. His book is The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show on Biotechnation, we're talking about Canavan disease, a devastating genetic disease starting at birth, and the efforts of Aspa Therapeutics to address it. Their delivery mechanism? A virus. You might wonder why. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Wharton Marketing Professor Jonah Berger. He's here today with the catalyst, how to change anyone's mind. In the old days in sales, you said, here's the deal, take it or leave it. 
do it or don't do it. And then the idea was you went silent. The next person who spoke loses, meaning you don't speak. If they speak, you got you probably got the sale. Um, you're saying do it, don't do it, or give them a defer choice, the ability to defer. Talk about that. Yeah, I think this notion of giving people choices is is quite powerful. Um, and so uh, people have this ingrained uh, anti-persuasion radar. Uh, and in the book, I talk about it as, as reactants, but it's almost like sort of an anti-missile defense system for persuasion, almost like a spidey sense, uh, someone called it. Anytime we feel that someone's trying to persuade us or change our mind, our defenses go up. Uh, we get an email from a salesperson, we delete it. Uh, a commercial comes on television, um, uh, you know, we walk to the other room. Uh, you know, uh, anytime we, even our spouse tries to persuade us, we know they're trying to persuade us, our defenses go up. You know, your spouse asks you what you want to do this weekend, uh, and you say go to a movie. They might have been fine going to a movie in the first place, but because you suggested it, well, now they're a little bit uh, against it. And so <laughs> what can we do to, to get around that? Uh, and so a great well, technique I talk about. Counseling. Uh, there is marriage. <laughs> counseling. That's certainly, this is a shorter way to get around, okay. maybe. Oh, and cheaper, um, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, yes. I did talk to some marriage counselors, though. They were very helpful for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I talk about is, is providing a menu or give people what I'll call guided choices, right? And so when your spouse asks you, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? Rather than giving them one option, uh, go to a movie, uh, give them two or three. And notice how that subtly shifts their role right? In, in, in before, when you give them one option, they're sitting there going, what are all the reasons why I don't like what you suggested? It's warm outside this weekend. We just saw a movie. Uh, they think about all the reasons why you're wrong. They're counter-arguing. They're almost like a, a high school debate team, right? Poking and prodding that message. Whether you're a salesperson or talking to your spouse, someone's sitting there thinking about all the reasons why they don't want to do what you suggest. But if you give them two options or even three options, suddenly now their role is different. Now they're comparing those different options and thinking about which one is the best for them, which means they're much more likely to go along with something you suggested at the end of the day. If you say, hey, we could go to a movie or go out for Chinese food, now they're thinking going, okay, well, rather than think about which one I hate, they're thinking about which one they like, which makes them much more likely to choose one. You've shifted their role. You've allowed them to participate. Notice you're not giving them a hundred choices. Right? You walk into a Japanese restaurant, they give you a menu. They don't give you 200 different options. You can't have Chinese food or Italian food. They give you a small set of options and they let you to choose from those options. It's choice, but it's guided choice. You're picking the set of options. You're shaping that journey. But by allowing someone to participate, they're more likely to go along. You've got three appendices here. Of course, I went right for the appendices. I thought they were a lot of fun. One is this active listening boot camp. And one of the things you say in there is use minimal encouragers, like nodding, uh, saying, yes, uh-huh. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. Ha- yeah. <laughs> 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 and I've been nodding. You can't see it. Yes. You know, <laughs> yeah. listening uh, in audio here. Um, uh, what What are you trying to do there exactly? Yeah. So, so a couple things. Uh, so first, there's a bunch of great research uh, on on what's called behavioral mimicry, uh, which which suggests that the more people feel like they have something in common, the more they feel like they're part of the same group, uh, the more they feel like there's some agreement between them, uh, they're much more likely to trust uh, and uh, like that person. So imagine, you know, we're talking now. Uh, we found out we had the same birthday, right? Suddenly now you feel like we're part of the same tribe. We have something in common. You're much more likely to 
trust me uh, and go along with with what I say later. And so uh, using minimal encouragers, agreeing with people, yes, uh-huh, it starts to build that kinship. It starts to suggest that, hey, we actually have a lot in common. We, we agree. Even if I'm just saying, uh-huh, like I understand you, uh, the fact that I'm saying, uh-huh, yes, it feels like we're kind of on the same team. I was recently on a uh, calling someone. I was uh, looking at getting uh, my uh, son, our son, uh, lessons at a pool, a kiddie pool. He's getting uh, kids swim lessons. And I called up this phone number. And I said, hey, I'm interested in kids swim lessons. Uh, and I said, hey, you know, what What days are available? And the guy goes, no, 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 no. Tell me what days work for you and I'll tell you what days we have. And I was like, well, I'm not exactly sure. And he goes, no, 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 no. And I was just sitting there going, all this you saying no makes me feel like we disagree. I'm not going to go buy something from you, right? I feel like we're already at odds. And so using minimal encouragers is the opposite of that. It makes us feel like we're on the same team and we, we agree a little bit. But there's actually some new research we've been doing that didn't even make the book, but I think is, is quite interesting leveraging that. It turns out that pausing in conversation, so, so you and I are talking, uh, and if I pause, uh, there's a tendency for the person who's not uh, the person who paused to fill in that blank, right? So if I'm explaining something and, and you pause um, uh, or I pause, you tend to go, oh, uh-huh, okay. You tend to use those minimal encouragers to get me to continue talking, which subtly makes you actually like me more because you've been agreeing with what I said. The more I pause, the more opportunities there are for you to say yes and uh-huh, the more you feel like we're in agreement. And again, the more you feel like we're on the same team. And so whether it's me using those minimal encouragers or whether it's me pausing, pausing to encourage you to fill in those blanks with yeses and ahas, which both of which make us feel like we kind of have something in common and makes us more likely to go along later when those tough things in the conversation come up. Obama was a big pauser, is a big pauser. He did an amazing job of that, right? Uh, and, and that pausing also really draws you in, right? Th those speeches, you know, as you're listening to them, uh, I went and listened um, uh, when I started teaching the core at the Wharton School. It's the introductory to uh, the marketing course uh, at Wharton for MBA students. And, and I went and listened to an award-winning core teacher. And I was sitting there trying to figure out you know, what in the world is he doing? Why does he get such high ratings? And I realized it was pausing, right? He had students at the edge of their seat because they didn't know what he was going to say next. And so they were leaning in to listen, to figure out what it, what it was. I'm not very good at that. I tend to be an overly fast talker, but it's certainly a technique that we can use to draw our audience in and make them more likely to listen. I had a friend who was a, a consultant and he'd say he was a real slow talker and we'd give George a hard time about that. <laughs> and George said, you know, the really good thing about speaking slowly is that if you can tell that the people you're looking at don't like what you're saying, you can change it by the end of the sentence. Uh, well, that George, he had something going for him. He did. But even as you told that story, I mean, I and your listeners probably did the same thing. We're like, what is it going to be? You know, what is it that George is saying? And the, and the fact that you're pausing made me pay even more attention. So I think it's a, another great technique. Can you over pause? <laughs> that was yes. hard to get out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, so we're actually working on that right now where, where certainly, you know, there is some slowing down and there's pausing, but eventually if someone pauses too much, you know, every other word, it just gets, it just gets frustrating. And so people <laughs> yeah. become less likely to listen. When they pick and, up their phones, start yeah. looking at me, you know, yes. you know yeah. you're done. <laughs> 
You're dead. The strategic freemium. Let's talk about that. It's so important these days. Yeah. I'd love to start with the idea of freemium and then broaden it uh, a little bit. But um, I think many of your listeners are probably familiar with the idea of freemium. But but just in case, uh, think about the company Dropbox, right? So Dropbox is a file storage company. Uh, Many people are familiar with it. But if not, you sort of store your files uh, on the cloud uh, rather than on your desktop. Uh, When they came out, now they're a billion-dollar business. Many people are familiar with them. Uh, when they came out, though, they were having trouble. Uh, and part of the reason was people were uncertain. Uh, they had never stored things in the cloud before. They were used to storing things on their computer. Uh, they were uh, used to you know, knowing exactly where that file was. I spent uh, hours uh, putting together a Word document or my family photos. I want to know exactly where they are. You know, What is that cloud? Where is the cloud? What if the cloud goes down? And so Dropbox was having trouble getting traction. They thought about buying a bunch of uh, keywords on Google. They thought about spending a bunch of money on advertising. Uh, but what they did instead is they gave it away for free. Uh, so anyone who went to the, the website, the Dropbox website, could get up to two gigabytes uh, of storage space for free. Uh, and you might go, well, hold on, how can you build a successful business giving away things for free? Uh, even a kid with a lemonade stand knows that you can't make money by giving away things for free, but they built a billion dollar business on it. How did they, they do that? It's obvious that consumers like free things, right? Consumers say, great, it's free. Uh, but businesses like it as well because because it's free, consumers are much more likely to check it out, right? Initially, Dropbox says, hey, we're great, we're fantastic, but there are a lot of barriers to trial. First of all, you would have to pay money usually to use a service, but there's also the time and effort to figure out how to use that service, the time and effort to load files up on Dropbox, the time and effort to learn the system and sync it with your computer. Um, and all of those switching costs prevent people from changing. All of those switching costs usually are upfront, the monetary cost, the time cost, the effort cost. Because those are upfront, people decide, well, I'm not going to go ahead and use this product. But by making it free, what they did is they lowered the barrier to trial. Dropbox made it cheaper in a sense, in that case, monetarily cheaper for people to check out uh, the, the service. But they not only made it cheaper, what they did is they allowed people to experience the value themselves. Sure, Dropbox might say, hey, storing things in the cloud is great, really easy to use, the service is going to change your life. No company's not going to say those things. So rather than us trying to convince them, why don't we let them convince themselves by allowing them to experience the value? But if you have a good product or service like Dropbox does, allow people to experience it themselves, right? That free version allows them to experience the value themselves. I might not know that I enjoy Dropbox, but once I've stored a few files on here, I realize how easy it is to use. I start storing more files on there and suddenly, eventually, I hit that two gigabyte uh, ceiling. Now they ask me, hey, to use more storage, you got to be willing to pay for it. Well, of course I'm going to be willing to pay for it because I've convinced myself of its value. I've run out of that free space because I've convinced myself how useful it was. And so Dropbox is one of the many unicorn companies that built a huge business by using free freemium. Yes, there's a free version, but there's also a premium version that they encourage people to upgrade to. If, you don't, uh, if you're not a New York Times subscriber, you can get a certain amount of articles for free. But once you use enough articles, you have to pay to get more articles. Use Pandora, you can get one version for free, but if you want to get rid of the ads, you have to pay to get rid of them. And so many services use this freemium model. But as you talked about, what's really important is, okay, well, what should I give away for free and how much? If I'm the New York Times, for example, if I give people 30 articles a month for free, that's so much for free, they probably never need to upgrade to that premium version. It's like if you stop by a restaurant and they're giving away free samples, but they give you a whole meal for free, 
Well, now you're full. You don't need to buy a meal from them. So you need to make sure it's not so much that people don't need more. But on the other side, if you give away too small a sample, if you give away too little, if Dropbox only allowed you to store one file, if the New York Times gave away one article, it might not be enough to provide that experience. And so what you want to do is give people enough of an experience, almost like an appetizer. So they see that it's good. They see that they like it, but they also see, wait a second, there's something better on the other side that it's worth upgrading to. But freemium is actually a, a version of a much broader principle, right? I work with many organizations and, and businesses um, and many of them say, well, I like this idea of freemium, but God, you know, I can't give away something for free. If I'm a car dealership, for example, what do I give away a car for free? I, I can't realistically do that. If I'm a, a heart surgeon, what am I going to give away surgery for free? Like what is the free version and, and what is the premium version? But it turns out that freemium is actually part of a much broader principle. And that's the idea of lowering that barrier to trial. There doesn't have to be a free version or a premium version. The question is just how can you lower those upfront costs to allow experience to be easier? Think about a test drive at a car dealership, for example. There's not a free version of premium version. There's no kind of free car and premium. You upgrade to the premium version of the car. No, test drives are just free. But what test drives allow you to do is they allow you to see, well, wait, this car's actually pretty good. I think I might like it. And so by lowering the upfront costs, think about test drives of services, think about uh, free samples at the grocery store, think even about free shipping. What it does is it lowers the barrier to let you figure out whether you'll like those goods that you got in, in the mail. And free shipping has helped all those internet businesses be successful because people didn't want to pay for shipping to figure out whether they'd like something or not. It wasn't about the monetarily free part. It was about lowering that uncertainty about whether I'm going to like something or not and not having to pay for it up front before I actually get the good. Well, Jenna, this has been absolutely terrific. And I do want to assure you, no one would ever guess you haven't gotten any sleep night after night. Doesn't sound <laughs> that way on the radio. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, I hope, I hope I see you next time. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Yes, indeed. That would be great. My guest today is Jonah Berger. The book is The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Canavan disease. That's C-A-N-A-V-A-N. Canavan. It's a rare childhood disease caused by a single gene. And when both parents are carriers, the chance of a child being born with Canavans is 25%. Dr. Eric David is the CEO of Aspa Therapeutics. Eric, you're working in the area of Canavan disease. What's that? So Canavan disease is uh, one of these awful, awful, um, heartbreaking children's brain diseases that um, is not screened for at birth. So often parents don't know that it's there. Um, it uh, Children appear to be normal for about the first six to eight months of life, but then the parents notice they're missing certain develop milestone, developmental milestones, or in an even more heartbreaking fashion, sometimes they'll develop that milestone and then lose it. Uh, and so um, the doctors then see that the the myelin in the brain, which is the part, you know, the parts of the brain that sort of are the insulation on the wires to the brain, if you will, that that white matter in the brain is deteriorating. You can tell that on an MRI, on a brain scan. And um, 
and then a little bit more. You know, there are only so many things that cause that to happen in small children, and eventually they get to a genetic diagnosis of Canavan, which is a disease where just a single gene is missing, but not having that gene means that one type of chemical reaction that needs to occur in the brain doesn't occur. Is there any treatment for it today? There's nothing for it today, which is one of the reasons why we were so excited to be able to take this disease on. What happens to the children? So they don't develop normally, which means they, they, they don't walk. They can't use their arms or legs, really. They often cannot even hold their heads up. They have trouble swallowing. Um, they usually, unfortunately, pass away by the age of about 10 to 12 years. What are you trying to do in this area? So, you know, there are. this is one of a set of diseases where the only way we can think of to treat it is to give patients back this gene that they are missing so that they can make that one missing protein in their bodies that will allow their their the cells in their bodies to process things normally. And um, the earlier you can give that back to them, that gene back to them, the better. Inserting missing genetic code into the body is really is really difficult. And so when people thought about doing this, and people have thought about this for decades now, they thought, okay, well, how could we get a gene into the body? And then, you know, it occurred to people, well, there's something that's evolved over millions of years to do just that, and that are viruses, right? Viruses that infect our bodies, common colds, the flu, they, they, they have evolved over time to take their DNA and inject it into our cells so that our cells keep copying it and they get perpetuated. And so the thought was, what if you could take out the virus's DNA and put in that missing gene and give people that virus? And so that's exactly what we do. And in fact, the the researcher who developed this treatment for cannabis disease is a, uh, a researcher at, at UMass named Guangping Gao. And Guangping is one of the fathers of gene therapy of using viruses to do this. But he also, before he started working on that, he identified or cloned the gene. They call it in, in our field cloning. He was the, the one who defined the gene for cannabis disease in the body. And so he's been around this disease since the mid-1990s. So um, if I didn't know anything about this, and I certainly don't know anything about how to do this, I'd be splicing the the missing gene onto a virus and just giving the virus to the to the patient. That's the basic idea. That's basically it. And obviously, as you might imagine, it, th there's a lot more complexity to more it. A more to but, it. And, and that complexity comes in in that most of the drugs that we develop, you know, in the biopharmaceutical industry are pills. And pills are basically chemicals. Um, and chemicals are, are pretty easy comparatively to manufacture. But our product that we deliver is a virus. It's a biological organism. It's alive. It's, yeah. I, and, and, it, and, it, and it evolves and mutates. Exactly. Exactly. And it's something that our bodies have evolved over time to recognize as potentially dangerous. You know, that's why we have immune systems, so that they can either get rid of those viruses or reduce their, the damage that they could do to our bodies. And so it's something that, that you have to be very careful with, you know, how much you give and whether or not the patient has the patient's body has been exposed to these kinds of viruses before. So those are all complexities that you don't have when you just give someone a pill. Do you have a choice of viruses to attach the gene to? That's a great question. Um, 
you know, we the the. Can you in- just take a virus from the patient? Slap it on there. It would be it, it would in. be nice. Do you know medicine's so easy when I talk? <laughs> exactly. <out>? Exactly. <laughs> no. Exactly. I, I. And one day we hope it will be that simple. Or one day we hope actually to get a way of delivering them into our cells without a virus. Actually, um, but for right now, viruses are what we have. And there's a certain class of virus that has a complicated name: adeno-associated virus, or AAV for short. And these are viruses that many people are exposed to throughout the course of their life without even knowing. They don't make you particularly sick or anything like that. Um, And it turns out that those viruses, because the immune system sort of, you know, our bodies recognize them but don't necessarily react so strongly against them, uh, they became an ideal virus for putting these genes in. Now, I know you've done some early work here with animals. How has that proceeded? Very well, very well. And it's there are uh, a couple of different um, mice that uh, you can essentially give Canavan disease to by taking that, taking that same gene that's missing in humans and taking it out of mice. And so those mice have a Canavan disease effectively. And so you can look at the efficacy, you can look at how effective our gene therapy is in these mice. And, you know, these mice, for example, if they're untreated, we just call them Canavan disease mice. Um, if they're untreated, they die after about four weeks of age. Um, but we have taken them out to a year and they they are just like normal mice at that time. And so we've done so many things in animals we weren't able to transfer right. over. But at least, you, but you don't go into humans until you can demonstrate. Exactly. In the animal model. Safety and efficacy, exactly. And now you're ready to go into humans. Yeah, yeah. And we've done some work in, in monkeys as well um, because with with something like a gene therapy, it's it, it, it makes everyone feel better about the safety to have some some data in animals that are a bit closer to humans. Right. In your first human trials, you're just looking for safety. These would be with healthy volunteers? So that's a great question. Now, in, in a disease like this, first of all, this is a very rare disease. So it occurs in about one out of every 90,000 people. And so what that means, especially given the fact that the children don't live very long, is if you look at the total population in the U.S. plus the EU of, of people alive with this disease, it's about between 1,000 and 2,000 people. Now, so it's a very rare disease, but also gene therapy, there's something that, that's another thing that's very different about it than that's different from pills, which is right now you can only give it once because regulators like the FDA worry if you gave it a second time, the body could have a really big immune reaction to it. In other words, a really bad response that could jeopardize the safety of the patient. And so you only have one shot at it. So it would be unfair to give one group of people the gene therapy and say to the other group of people, well, you're going to get a placebo. You might not even get the gene therapy. So what what the FDA allows us to do in rare diseases like this is to do what they call a natural history study, which is just what it sounds like. They say, okay, you can treat you you don't have to do a group that doesn't get the virus you don't have to do safety you know volunteers who are healthy volunteers but what we want you to do is get a data set from patients who have this disease and have had it for years and just tell us how the disease looks over time so we can have a group that we compare it to that you know you can go back and look at patient records from the last 40 years and define for us 
what the what the course of the disease looks like untreated. And so then when you go into humans, you have a profile exactly from the history of how the disease progresses. Exactly. And that way patient patient families feel okay, I know that my child is going to get the gene therapy, not get a placebo. And so now we're talking about families who have to permit this. Yeah. That's tough. It's incredibly tough. And it's and it I have to say it's really inspiring. I mean, one thing I love about what I do is as someone who develops new drugs for a living in a, a space where you're working with diseases that are this rare and this devastating, um, we work very closely with some of the patient advocacy groups, with um, the, the families, many of whom have children with these patients, that, that advocate on behalf of, you know, pushing research for these diseases and awareness of these diseases. And so we, we meet with them by phone or in person about once a month. We've met, and my, my whole team, including all of my scientists, have met these, these patients and their families. And it's inspiring what they go through and what they can tell us about the disease and what would be meaningful to them. Because frankly, in a disease like this, they, they understand that the gene therapy may not turn their child into a completely normal child, but they are able to tell us, here are the things as parents that would be hugely meaningful to us. If my child could maintain eye contact with me and track things with their eyes, if my child could hold something with their hands, hold their head up, swallow better. Um, a lot of these children, because of the way the, the disease affects their nerves, they're, they're very spastic. If they were sitting here in a chair with us, their bodies would be moving and their limbs would be jerking a lot of the time, and it's immensely uncomfortable for them. So the parents say, if, if you could have an effect on that so my child could just sit calmly and not be in pain and uncomfortable, that would be huge. So how do you administer this drug? So in this particular case, and there are different ways to administer these gene therapies, Ours would be an intravenous delivery, so a simple injection into the arm or another part of the body that goes in, you know, into your bloodstream and then gets throughout your body. How long after injection would you begin to see a difference? It's a great question. It does take time, as you might imagine, for because the gene has to get into the cells and into the right types of cells in your brain and your central nervous system. And then it has to get into the part of the cell where all the DNA is. Um, and it has to, then the machinery has to copy it, you know, churn it from... Adopt, exactly. adapt, pull up this uh, new gene. <laughs> exactly. Pull it up and make the, the protein, the, the thing that actually does the work in the body that the gene is coding for. Um, and then once that protein is made, it's got to be made in sufficient quantities for it to have the right effect on the right cells. And so, you know, we would expect to see a first readout after injection would be somewhere around three months. By three months, we should certainly be, be able to tell... Like, yes, it's, there's some, some real evidence that it's working. And when do you start in humans? We hope to start in 2020. Well, uh, Eric, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you come back. Keep us updated. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Aspa Therapeutics is now enrolling the natural history portion of its human clinical trial, collecting the medical histories of Canavan patients as a baseline for its future gene therapy study. More information on how to participate is available at treatcanavan.com. That's treatcanavan, C-A-N-A-V-A-N, treatcanavan.com.
I've been speaking with Dr. Eric David, the CEO of Aspa Therapeutics. More information about Aspa is available at aspatx.com. That's Aspa, A-S-P-A, aspatx.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.